The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Friday, September 13th, 2019. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. There was no clear winner in last night's debate, but punching himself in the face was Julian Castro, who went hard at Biden. But as Joe Biden's dad used to tell him back in Scranton, Joe, when you come for the king, what? There's a king? Where? King? Here, boy. Here, boy. Now, I got to say, Castro came off a little like, well, do we, do we play the explicit warning? This is a word that's on the line of explicit. You could say it on network television, but I still think it's apt, though harsh. Came off like a dick. Kind of a dick. So there was one clear loser. There was no clear winner though it wasn't for a lack of trying in the attempt to be clear. So let's be clear about health. Let us be clear, Joe. And we just need to be clear about what... Let's be clear. Let's be clear about this. Let me be very clear. Let me be very clear. Let me be clear. I am... Let's just be clear. Uh, And let's be clear in all the... I happen to believe also that what, to me, democratic socialism means is we deal with an issue... We do not discuss enough, Jorge. Oh, sorry. That last one wasn't Senator Sanders talking about needing to be clear. It was an instance of him needing some throat clearing. Have you noticed that no one ever prefaces a truly clear statement with the words, let me be clear? Clarity is its own quality. It's like humility or virtue. You can't convey it by calling someone else's attention to your own. When you hear, let me be clear, the speaker is basically admitting, you might not like this, or I'm going to get a little defensive, but... Speaking of defensive, there wasn't one question about the subject of defense. Not in general. They talked about the war in Afghanistan, but what about the defense budget, for instance? So I elicited such a question. In fact, I elicited a few could have been questions from a panel of experts. Because you always see and hear, at least I do on Twitter, uh, the, the refrain, you know, this whole debate and there wasn't even a question on. There weren't any questions about Yemen. There weren't any questions about clean water. There weren't any questions about Cory Booker's diet. Actually, there was a question about Cory Booker's diet. So, okay, panel of smart people who I hit up. If you were the moderator, what question would you have asked? So here are the responses I got. Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine, who's at the debate, says, what's your number one attribute for a Supreme Court justice? Which one is your all-time favorite? Do you think there should always be nine justices? All right, in order here, what my answers, what's the number one attribute, that he already owns a robe, who's your all-time favorite, learned hand, do you think there should be nine justices? No, it would be better if Clarence Thomas sat a few out. Okay, okay. From now on, I'll just give you the questions that should have been asked, not my retorts, and I will also acknowledge, I know, learned hand never made it to the top court. Grace Seegers of CBS News would have liked... What actions would your administration take if Roe v. Wade was overturned? There were, in fact, no abortion questions in the debate. Harry Enten of CNN would have put this to Elizabeth Warren. Senator Warren, you often dismiss questions as Republican talking points, but you'll be facing a Republican in the general election. How will you respond then? And the Democratic Redistricting Committee did tweet out last night, not a single question on voting rights or gerrymandering. We have to do better. So I hit them up and their communications director, Patrick Roddenbush, said, how about asking, 
How do you plan to implement changes at the federal level that will ensure America lives up to the principle of one person, one vote? I like that question. Rosa Brooks, former counselor to the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, would have liked asked, is the defense budget too big or are we just spending money on the wrong things? And also, Rosa wanted to know this. This is a Bernie Sanders specific question. Do you need a cough drop? Thanks to all the actual experts for their unasked questions. I kind of like that exercise. I'm thinking of continuing it in future debates. If you liked it, drop me a line or come to our live show on Monday and tell me in person. It's at the Bell House in Brooklyn. It's about comedy. Slate.com slash live for tickets. On the show today, more debate in the spiel. Castro shivs Joe. Booker takes us back to 1850. And Kamala takes us somewhere over the rainbow. But first... The last question of last night's debate was, what's your biggest professional setback? We heard Amy Klobuchar talk about being kicked out of the hospital while her baby was sick, and Elizabeth Warren being asked to leave her job as a special needs teacher because she was pregnant, and Pete Buttigieg coming out as gay in a state where Mike Pence was the governor. All compelling professional setbacks. How about this? How about the time I was a single mom during the Great Recession, desperate to make some money, I returned to a once lucrative profession as a stripper, and began drugging some Wall Street dudes and running up their credit cards. Now, that's a candidate. Also, J-Lo would be the running mate. All right, I don't know if this candidacy wins Montana's three electoral votes, but I know it is the plot of a new movie opening today, Hustlers. You've seen the ads. You've plucked the glitter out of your belly button. Now, here's my interview with Hustlers director, Loreen Scafaria. The Hustlers at Scores was the 2015 article by Jessica Pressler in New York Magazine that I found to be the most thrilling article I had read in years, not just because of the plot or the character, but because of the observation about the the zeitgeist, where we were. A movie of that article has been made. You've probably heard about it because Jennifer Lopez establishes herself as perhaps the most charismatic human being on earth. Hustlers is the name of the film. It's directed by and written by Lorraine Scafaria, who's here. Hello, Lorraine. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. Did you read it in 2015? No, I wasn't that cool. I read it in... uh... (laughs) It's a big magazine. It's on the newsstand. You don't have to be cool. I'm not educated either. But um, no, I I just... I wasn't aware of it. I don't know things that go viral. (laughs) That's good. That's mostly a protective uh, reaction. It was sent to me uh, in the summer of 2016 by uh, Gloria Sanchez, who were the producers of the film. What do you like about the article? Everything. I loved how it was written. Yeah. Uh, I loved the story. I thought it was so compelling. I thought it was a world we hadn't really seen before from the dancer's point of view. Uh, obviously, it was a great crime story. Uh, if you read between the lines, it's an incredible friendship story. Mm-hmm. And then it just touched on all these themes that I really wanted to talk about in my work, but touched upon them organically. Yeah. Now, Jennifer Lopez, were you intimidated when she signed on? No, I mean, well, I mean, I met her, you know, in order for her to sign on. So um, I was certainly intimidated to go meet with her, but half because she's Jennifer Lopez and half because I I don't know who else could have played this part. So if she didn't want to play it and if we didn't hit it off, 
you know, <laughs> yeah, I don't know what I would have done. So um, no so, actual humans, like maybe Jessica Rabbit or something. Yes, but no, actual no, humans. yes, an animated, yeah, absolutely, maybe. Yeah. maybe. But so when I was going to meet with her, the stakes were obviously higher than just I'm going to meet Jennifer Lopez for the first time, and so course she was everything i could have imagined she'd be was it one of the cases where oh i'm going to use hollywood terms that i only hear about but attaching the star was very important to getting it made well for me it was yes let's say yes but also i don't know that anyone could really picture what the movie was until Mm -hmm. you start to put faces to it because on paper i think it's a little more threatening honestly and and in just what it's talking about. And and as soon as you start to say, well, like, look, we're approaching this as a human story, obviously. On paper, I think it's a human story. But when you start to see, like, oh, yes, okay, I, I can imagine her bringing this to life. And, oh, okay, and that's destiny. And now I'm starting to get it. I think it helps people, of course, to, yeah. to see it. So some of the other members of your cast, Cardi B, who has been a stripper, and Lizzo, who is has blown up now. But when you cast her, was she... Were you as aware of her career as everyone is in 2019? Well, I was chasing her for like a year before the movie was um, going. Uh, So I was uh, aware, but I'm sure I was still late to the party. I feel like everybody was late to the party on that. So, But she has only blown up more and more. She's the best. She's uh, the definition of an entertainer, too. I mean, she is just... What she does to a room, what she did on set and and the life that she brought into the scenes and into the character. And she's a natural, though. She's a real actor, too. I mean, to her credit, to Cardi's credit, they're obviously just they have incredible personalities. I don't think anybody would be, be surprised to know that they are great improvisers or anything like that. But they also both read lines in, in the script and, and played characters and and Cardi based Diamond on a girl she used to know. So like they really did step into these roles and, and coexist in this movie with with actors and strippers and dancers and and, you know, megawatt stars. They were they it, seeing them all together in that locker room. And Lizzo and Lizzo does play the flute. Well, yeah. yeah. You have to have her playing the flute. <laughs> I mean, I asked, but, I, you know, I wrote it in, but, I, you know, I'm glad she said okay. What were Jennifer's poll moves before it all started? I believe none. Wow. I believe, I, I don't, who am I to say, but I, uh, as far as I know, she had never even attempted it. And I think everyone assumes because she's a dancer that it, it would have just been the easiest thing to pick up, but she trained so hardcore for this. She brought this pole with her in so many different cities because she was traveling so much of the time for work. And yeah, you can't just use whatever pole they provide, like whatever the concierge gives you. <laughs> of course, especially if you're Jennifer Lopez, well, you gotta, you gotta get have it. a custom yeah, pole. Yeah, well, I mean, yes, of course, <laughs> and and you need a great choreographer, yeah. and I mean, uh, Johanna Sabaki, who who is our pole choreographer, and. Jennifer had wanted this song at first, and then I presented her with uh, Fiona Apple's Criminal because it was a similar tempo. Right. And um, and I thought it said so much, and so and she was really into it. And so we edited into she edited into something for this dance that we only got to see I think two weeks before we shot it, and realized oh my god like this is like a live event like we have three hundred extras watching Jennifer Lopez strip and like we need to cover this like the live event like the sports event yeah. that it kind of is now, did you pay the extras or did they pay you, <laughs> you it's a good question i should have said you're welcome at the end of the night so thank you but no they were they were troopers i mean we had crazy hours it was shot in 29 days so every every background person is a trooper 
But you've only done movies, right? This and The Meddler, movies you've directed in, what, less than a month? That's how you always do it? Not it's by brutal. choice? You know, in a way, they all, like, they're too ambitious on the page and demand too many locations and, and span time and all that kind of stuff. So this was uh, the amount of support that SDX gave. Honestly, like, I can't even describe it. Never experienced anything like that in my life because, um, yeah, I mean, people can do a lot with a little, obviously. People have made incredibly visual micro-budget movies, so that's not to say I, I didn't have my shots before, but this was uh, a world I was so excited to explore in, like, a gritty glamour kind of way and, like, a little bit heightened, a little bit, um, you know, grounded, all, all of that. It was really exciting to How tackle. did you try, are there visual or other techniques to make it sometimes sexy but sometimes seedy? How do you communicate that? That was really about, again, applying that theme of control to the camera. And so there are scenes where the characters are not in control. There are scenes where the characters are fully in control. Something like Ramona's entrance really was that moment where I felt like she, if she was holding the cameras and, and doing the dance at the same time, I would believe it. And so, yeah, it was uh, it was really about capturing the world. It was also just approaching it without shame or like any ulterior motives, really. I, I uh, wanted to highlight the athleticism of it. Again, like a sports movie might um, show the strength and power that these moves require. Um, so the songs, the score pieces, the Chopin cues were always written into the script to just, again, highlight that kind of grace and elegance and beauty, the ballet of it. Yeah, I wanted to capture everything. The the, the club at its height, obviously, the there is a sexiness to it. There is a sleaziness to it sometimes. It, it The club is a living, breathing thing, depending on who's working and who's, mm-hmm. who's come in and whether there's money flowing or not. I mean, that's the difference between a good night and a bad night. Obviously. Did you shoot it in, a, in an actual strip club? Yes. Yeah, Which one? Uh, it was uh, Show Palace in Long Island City. Oh, yeah. is that right over the bridge? Yeah, it's a huge strip club. So we had well, it to is a palace. fill it. It is palatial. It's a palatial yes. show. <laughs> um, it's, it, was, uh, it was so funny because people told me, oh, you don't want to shoot in a real working strip club. And um, as soon as I saw this place, I was like, oh my gosh, this is, this is what I've been picturing for so long, and my dream. <laughs> I want to bring it to life, and I, I, I would say the only thing I feel bad about right now is realizing that it was closed for that week for those girls, and I, I just want to die. I like really do. I feel horrible. I have to go there. I have to, <laughs> I have to do something to make up for it, honestly. Because, um, but, but I'm so grateful that we shot in this place because it just captured that spirit and. I just wanted that scope, you know, I really, I always knew I wanted to follow that character from the locker room out on the floor. I wanted it to feel like football players leaving the tunnel, you right. know, you know, I definitely wanted all of that, that, that roadmap out there. And so, um, Jane Muskie, incredible production designer, Todd Van Hazel, our DP, Mitchell Travers, I mean, our costume designer, like the three of them are just artists, you know, and, and every single frame is a result of that kind of collaboration. And, and of course, my editor who edited The Meddler, <laughs> Kayla. Do you think by doing it in 29 days, it gives it uh, an urgency and momentum? Do you worry if your next uh, movie, this is so successful and you get a huge budget and you have <laughs> six months to work, you worry about pulling off that uh, same trick in an extended amount of time? Well, I do love the rush. I mean, I do love, I love the energy of it. I like pulling things off. 
But they're always that way. It doesn't well, even matter. A stripper movie would be good for you. Then. <laughs> there you go. I, it, you know, I think you can make anything for however much time and money they give you in a way. You know, like if it's like there's definitely a floor, obviously, for something. But I think you can make it too bloated. There's probably a ceiling too. So I, these are my favorite kinds of movies. The movies that aren't getting made anymore. Obviously, I mean, I would very much enjoy a tentpole. I would very much enjoy making an indie again, but. The, these are the movies I grew up on, this 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 size of film. So honestly, I just want to do this again. <laughs> I just want yeah. to get the chance to do this again. I did mean to ask, why Chopin? I mean, there could have been different classical music cues. Mm. Always Chopin. Uh, always Chopin, but specifically his etudes, specifically his studies, which were, um, they're just the hardest things to play on piano. They're like crazy arpeggios that require flexibility and dexterity that, uh, you know, your hands are flying around that in a way that, Reminded me of the dancers, reminded me of what's required for the pole work. And um, very specifically, those songs, very, you know, for each of those scenes that was, uh, you know, written into the script very specifically. And it kind of wasn't until seeing, you know, uh, Jennifer training Constance in that in that scene and like watching that that back. And I I had been editing um, strippers and strip teases to Chopin for like at least over a year at that point. Uh, as like a proof of concept for uh -huh. myself. So it was always the sound of it. Even funnier, it was, it was always these specific recordings that I was working with. 99% um, of them um, were played by this pianist, Thomas Lyer, who comes from uh, Germany. We couldn't locate him for so long. And I was like, but these pieces are, people don't realize how hard these are to play. Like you can't just get even the greatest Chopin pianist in the world, someone who's won awards. Like you cannot just say like, here, just uh, do Opus 25, number one. <laughs> like Just figure that out. And it's like, oh my God, it, it really is so, they're so hard to play. And Wh so, Why'd you have to get Liar? So he would clear it? You need his permission? Yeah, because those are the recordings of it. I mean, even though... Uh, Chopin uh, doesn't get many money right, at this point. He's, he's in the public. He's in the public domain, domain now, but but they're, oh, really? they're so Thomas's the work, and so and you can't just uh, clear it through whoever owns the copyright. I mean, I could have paid another pianist to have done it, and yeah. and when there was one song that we did uh, hire another pianist, Matt Herskowitz, to to play. So I was very lucky to have that because otherwise there there would have been a gaping hole in the storytelling, of course. When you say you put it together for proof of concept for yourself. Do you know just when you see it or do you get other people's reaction? How do you, how do you prove the concept to yourself? Well, I, you know, it took me a long time to get the directing job. I, I It was a writing assignment. Uh -huh. um, and so... They wanted Scorsese first, I understand. Sure, yeah. I don't blame them. <laughs> me too. Um, uh, when they said as much, I was like, you know what? I'd be psyched to sit on one of his sets <laughs> if, he, if he'd let me. So um, that was, a, a, I suppose, an obvious first choice. And Adam McKay is a producer on it. So I think he was another choice or, or a thought, you know, uh -huh. um, but he was making Vice. Uh, and so... No, as you can imagine, there's a, there's a large list of directors between me and Scorsese. So um, there were a lot of people considered for the part, uh, for the job before before I got it. And, um, and that is part of what I mean about Dancing for the Money. It, it was an um, earth-shattering process. But I was editing footage of it, again, not just to get myself the directing job, but to prove to them that this was a movie worth making. Because... This was a hard movie to get made. I think the stigma around strippers, the stigma around, like we were talking about female characters doing bad things, these kinds of anti-heroes, not yeah. necessarily being Walter White's, that 
Yeah, it was really hard to get made. It was certainly a hard job to get. So my editor, Kayla Emter, and I uh, cut together this sizzle reel, which was basically like a two-minute, like almost a trailer, but using footage from other movies and music videos to act as if it's like a Hustlers trailer. And and it was a, an amazing exercise because it showed, obviously, there, there's a market for this, for everything from nine to five to, you know, mean girls, bridesmaids. I, I just thought to myself, like, well, what's the difference between these these movies and, and a story about these girls in the locker room who certainly get, like, a little out of control? And so it also showed me there was such a hole in the marketplace because there was just not a lot of footage of, of strippers in movies and from their point of view. Right. There was this time in the 80s where there every time two people, two guys had to have a conversation. Yes. Like in Beverly Hills Cop, it would be set in a strip club for sure. no reason other than, I guess we had no other access to boobs on the screen. Yes, right. Yeah. You'd see women from the waist down, right. like in the background. Um, it was so funny because after doing this, I, I was watching something recently and there's a scene in a strip club, of course, and the camera's focused on the two guys at the table. And I'm going like, what am I, what am I like up against right here? I'm realizing like, oh, I'm not used to, I'm actually not used to watching these guys actually talk and, and focus on them for this long. It's yeah. Just, yeah. It's been a while. <laughs> I'd like to, I'd like a whole Sopranos pass just from the Bada Bing perspective. Oh, wow. Yeah. Just from inside. Yes, exactly. Huh. Lorene Scafaria is the director of Hustlers. It's out now. Eh, I would say that it's gotten uh, quite a bit of, as they say, buzz. Yes? <laughs> it's really, really an arresting movie, and you're going to be, if you see it, just blown away by Jennifer Lopez, Constant Wu, and the whole cast. Mercedes Rule, too. Thank you, Lorraine. Thank you so much. And now the spiel. Maybe Julian Castro was just sick of all the people asking him, hey, wouldn't you want to be vice president? Or maybe a guy like you would be good to balance out the ticket. Or how's about a VP slot, Julian? And he just couldn't take it. What do I got to do? What do I got to do to get out of here and savage my vice presidential chances? I know. I'm going to treat Joe Biden like he's a doddering old fool. And I'm not going to let it go. And also, and this is key to my strategy, I'm going to get the central premise wrong. Uh, are, you, are you forgetting what you said two minutes ago? Are you forgetting already what you said just two minutes ago? I mean, I can't believe that you said two minutes ago that they had to buy in, and now you're saying they don't have to buy in. You're forgetting that. But here's what Biden said. Quote, you'll be able to get into anyone who can't afford it gets automatically enrolled in the Medicare-type option we have. Aha. See, when a candidate is tough but fair in a critique, you know, sometimes things get tough for that candidate, and that is not always fair. But when a candidate is tough but unfair, and also attacking a somewhat beloved figure to those in his party, and this is the key, the unfair part, most people will decide that that candidate sucks. At first, I thought maybe Mayor Rahm Emanuel was overstating things when he, in offering the first analysis on ABC after the bait, first guy out of the gate, what do you think happened? And Rahm Emanuel said that Castro's comments were disqualifying. But now I kind of agree with him. I think Castro really hurt himself. And I think what he's going to have to do is a no-win situation that will cement his place as... Mm, an afterthought. So he's either going to have to dissemble and say he didn't mean what he said, or he'll say something like, well, I didn't really say what I said, 
and that'll hurt his credibility, or Castro will have to grovel and seek forgiveness, which will be hard for him to do, and will probably redound in his being written off as weak. You know, if only Castro could have waited for the part with the record player. I mean, Biden started off strong, but then he got to a dithering as the night wore on. In the beginning of the debate, he was a fiery champion of incrementalism, but then he started talking about giving the kids a record player. Yeah, I know. It was supposed to be a Victrola, not a record player. We get it, you fact checkers. But in all honesty, other candidates actually said things that were just as wacky. Some seemed couched in plausibility, or even more than plausibility, solemnity. I mean, Cory Booker made an argument that I've heard before, and I will admit, I thought it was compelling. I said, wow, I didn't realize that. But then I really got to thinking about it, and I wondered what it meant. This is Cory Booker's statement. And it's nice to go all the way back to slavery, but dear God, we have a criminal justice system that is so racially biased, we have more African Americans under criminal supervision today than all the slaves in 1850. All right. One, that's true. That, that checks out. But two, when you really think about it, there's not much relevance to this statistic. It's also been true for over 20 years. There were 850,000 slaves in America in 1850. And by the mid-90s, that was when the total number of African Americans uh, in jail, parole, or probation crossed that number. But what the statistic does is it treats incarceration as being similar to slavery or or the rationale for incarceration as being similar to slavery. Now, slavery was, of course, a pure evil that no one deserves, but obviously some of the people in prison deserve to be in prison. Every society has some people in prison. If things were going as well for the United States as was plausible, you'd still have a lot of people in prison in a country of 330 million. If the United States had the low incarceration rate of a Scandinavian country, you'd still have thousands of people and thousands of African Americans in prison. That's just reality. No one should be a slave, but you'd have to have some people in prison. And by the way, a way to ameliorate the horrors of prison are institutions like probation and parole. There is no such equivalent with slavery. I wouldn't make an analogy to certain types of slavery. I don't know what that would be in the house or in the field. I don't want to even really think about it. Slavery is unfortunate in every circumstance. And to be a prisoner is maybe unfortunate, but also maybe quite justified. It seems to work on a surface level if you say being in both situations are unmitigated horrors that no one deserves. But they're different. For slavery, that's true. For prison, sometimes it's not true. Here are some other ways to think about it. It's true. There are as many African Americans in prison or on parole as there were slaves. But right now, there are 3 million African Americans enrolled in college and university. And that's more than triple the number of enslaved people in 1850. To which I say, so what? What does that prove? Does that prove we're better? In 1850, there were only about 35 million Americans at all which is less than the population of African-Americans now. There are more African-Americans today than there were Americans of any background in 1850. Again, so what? Is over-incarceration a problem? It is. Was slavery the greatest blight in our country's record? Absolutely. Are those two connected? They are, but the connection is not just illustrated by a head count. That, at least, was a statement that you had to think about. On the other hand, there was Andrew Yang's 
second big giveaway of the night. My proposal is that we give every American hundred democracy dollars that you can only give to candidates and causes that you like. This democracy dollars. Are these like Dave and Buster bucks? Are they real dollars? Are they meant to further democracy or are they printed on a different kind of paper? Maybe not even green. Are they symbolic of our commitment to our shared values? If so, isn't that what Ethereum is? Andrew Yang is definitely the only person on that stage who could explain the blockchain. Is that what was going on? Maybe start small. Maybe get Bernie to promise socialism sense. Then you segue into democracy dollars. This was, by the way, Andrew Yang's second big cash giveaway of the night. He did promise 10 lucky viewers $1,000 a month for a year. So the 100 democracy dollars, it's more of a box on the display floor than what was behind curtain number two. And maybe he'll throw in a ceramic Dalmatian and a gift certificate. So if Booker said something that seemed to hold great import but really didn't, and if Yang said something that on its face was risible, Kamala Harris got all relatable. Donald Trump in office on trade policy. You know, he reminds me of that that guy in The Wizard of Oz. You know, when you pull back the curtain, it's a really small dude. Oh, you mean The Wizard of Oz? That guy in The Wizard of Oz who's behind the curtain, he's The Wizard of Oz. He reminds me of, in Being John Malkovich, that bald character actor who's a little weird. You know the guy I mean? You know, you know what he reminds me of? Those four guys who chase and capture ghosts from that movie Ghostbusters, you know what it's like? It's like in the Owls of Gahul, Legends of the Guardian, one of those owls who are from, where were they from? I believe it was Gahul. And then George Stephanopoulos got a little offended and Kamala Harris said this. But I am going to take this to Sanders. it wasn't about you. I'm going to take this to Sanders. No, it wasn't. It was about the Wizard of Oz. That is who it was about. The guy in the Wizard of Oz, who she was referring to, was the Wizard of Oz. So like I said in the top of the show, no clear winner, but to be clear, some very weird stuff. It's like the lesson I took from that movie, it's a mad, 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 mad world about the state of the world. Just that, you know, it's kind of crazy. And that's it for today's show that just was produced by Daniel Schrader, who reminds me of that guy in The English Patient. He was from Britain. I believe it was like in the hospital or something. Help me out here. The Gist. We're like that podcast that really gets to the nub or heart of the matter. No, 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 no. You're thinking about the one that came out today and explained things? That's Today Explained. This is more like, I don't know. Anyway, I hope to see you Monday night in that house where they have the bells in Brooklyn. You know the one I mean. Oomperu, Deperu, Duperu. And thanks for listening.